You're listening to the ERLC podcast. All right. Can y'all not hear me? We, can't we can now. hear you. We were just ignoring you. Can y'all not hear me? We can, we can hear, hear you. you. Could you hear me before? When you said I'm just dropping in links? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just ignored it. Oh, then you really were just ignoring me. Okay. Yeah. Right. yeah. Just making sure. <laughs> <laughs> As 2020 comes to a close, we're thankful for the role we've been able to play in your lives. We're thankful that we get to assist churches by helping them apply the gospel to moral and ethical questions of the Christian life and by speaking from our churches as a witness to the public square. This podcast is one of the many ways we do this. If you've benefited from the content shared on this podcast, would you please consider making a year-end donation? We're supported by the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention, but any individual donations we receive apart from that goes to placing ultrasound machines in pro-life pregnancy centers and advocating for religious liberty and human dignity here at home and across the globe. Please consider making a year-end donation at erlc.com backslash donate. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today are my co-host, Lindsay Nicolay. Hello, everybody. And Brent Leatherwood. Howdy, friends. It's it's good to be back. Brent, it's good to have you back, man. Uh, That's right. I forgot you. you were gone. Yeah, I missed last week, right? Yeah. yeah, I hate to tell you, we got so much good feedback about that episode last week, but I'm still <laughs> confident you were sorely missed. You know, it's good to change things up a little bit. It's like, you know, I'm all the time I eat Honey Nut Cheerios, but every now and then I like a little bit of Lucky Charms and it's okay. I'm going to go back to Honey Nut Cheerios, but it's it's well, good for you, the audience. But Lucky Charms, it wets the appetite. Yes. You don't know what you got till it's gone. So thank you, Lindsay. <laughs> and later in the show, we're going to talk to a special guest, Dr. Russell Moore, uh, the president of the ERLC, our boss, and we are very excited to have him on the show today. But Lindsay, take us into it. Tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week. Are we actually ready for me to do that? I'm ready for you to do that. And see, I wanted to start off by saying, okay, so I need to just come up with a different line. All righty, folks. So for our first piece on ERLC.com this week, we are returning to our wait, wait, primer instead of, series. Instead of starting with OK, you decide to go to all righty, folks? righty, yes. Yeah. <laughs> all righty is very warm and welcoming. I suppose you could always pivot back to okie dokie. <laughs> okie dokie. <Yeah>. Golly <laughs> gee, everybody. Uh, exactly. I mean, are we are we doing the podcast with Foghorn and Leghorn here? <laughs> yes. <laughs> P.S. That was my shining moment at Redemption City. I had to make announcements one time when we were in one of our million locations. And the one of the pastors, so whoever had preached, maybe it was Jed, was talking about how people don't say G or golly G or something. And the minute I got up there, what did I say? Golly G, folks. It's been so good to be with you. <laughs> anyway, cracked myself up. So, kicking off our articles this week on ERLC.com, we are returning back to our primer series, which we've been talking about the last several weeks, where we are covering different aspects of Christian ethics to help us understand these really important issues. And what we're doing is covering books on various topics, short books, so that they're accessible to you in the midst of your everyday busy lives, so you can feel equipped and educated when it comes to the various issues that make up Christian ethics. 
This week, we're running a piece by Jared Kennedy, who, if you don't know, is also our family and parenting channel editor. He's also an author himself, but he covers the issue of family, and his article is titled, Why Every Christian Should Care About Family Ethics, Understanding What the Bible Teaches, and Recognizing We're All Part of a Family. And right off the bat, even in his title, highlights the importance of this article because, indeed, whether we're single, whether we're married, whether we come from a broken family or an intact, healthy family, we are all a part of a family. And the family is one of the most attacked institutions in our culture today. And so we need to be able to answer these really hard and complex cultural questions. And the book that he recommends and that he writes about is called God, Marriage, and Family, Rebuilding the Biblical Foundation by uh, Kostenberger with David Jones. But he also throws in a shout out to our boss, Russell Moore, and brings up his book, The Storm-Tossed Family. And so that's one that you could check out as well. But I would recommend that you uh, take a look at this article Because again, even as we think about the holidays, even if we're gathering over Zoom, we're navigating complex family issues, and Jared gives us a good place to start from. Lindsay, it's so cool that Jared has joined us as a part of our team just in this part-time capacity. He is one of the very best voices when it comes to family ministry. And so this article uh, and and what he recommends here is certainly worth checking out. Also, uh, Jared's own resources uh, that are available for parents as they are trying to find uh, quality Christian books to read with their kids, as they're trying to rehearse gospel truths. Jared just does an incredible service for Christian families in, in the work that he does. Yeah, we are so thankful for Jared, and his contributions have just been excellent. So again, I would encourage you to check out the article. Moving on, of course, we have not forgotten about COVID because COVID is everywhere, and COVID is affecting our lives, and COVID is uh, like the Lamb Chop show. It's the song that will not end. It's the virus that will not end. Yes, it goes on and on, my friends. Some people started singing it. You remember that? Did you ever watch that growing up? Is no. that is that COVID or is that the year 2020? Yeah, it is. It's the year 2020 as well. But <laughs> it reminds me. It reminds me of that the meme that was going around over this year where the guys <laughs> he's celebrating the clock changing over December 31st, 2020, <laughs> and at midnight it just keeps going in 2020. Oh, it keeps going. It's Groundhog Day. <laughs> oh man, please. Please don't let it happen. Uh, I just want to get but, some more Lindsay singing going on. Yeah. Well, don't worry. You ask for it. Got to give the people what they ask for. Um, That's right. So back to this COVID article. So we have actually two disaster specialists who have written this article, which I told my husband, I was like, wow, there are so many fields of expertise I could have gone into when I was in college, but I didn't, I didn't know these things existed. So they've studied disaster psychology and disaster ministry, and they're out of Wheaton, Jamie Atten and Kent Annan. And their article is titled, What You Need for Spiritual First Aid During COVID, Biblical and Research-Based Guidance to Help Churches Respond to Needs in a Disaster-Filled World. And so this article is important because it talks about how how there are spiritual and physical needs in the midst of COVID, but those are more challenging to meet because we have to be socially distanced. And so they use their combined three decades of experience uh, to give some advice, and they also use something that they have uh, field tested for the last 
four years and refined, and they call it spiritual first aid. And so it just gives us some practical guidelines for how we can be aware of and respond to the needs of those around us. Because even though, and this is, I'm guilty of this, even though we're away from people, socially distanced, that doesn't give us an excuse to be out of sight, out of mind. We need to be aware, especially as believers, and cognizant of how we can actively help shepherd people through this difficult season. Lindsay, I, th- I thought this piece was was helpful because it actually surfaces the struggle that I, I know I'm facing, and it sounds like a lot of uh, my friends are facing in this moment where everything has been kind of reframed with either uh, us, you know, working from home or, or doing things at a at a physical social distance. Um, and and that's just really hard. Uh, and you know, in some ways, I feel like you know I'm, I'm trying to keep up a regular schedule, and, and things are busy. But then at the same time, it just feels like things are moving incredibly uh, slowly, and it, it's just hard to do these things. And so I, I think that this, you know, your reminder don't don't just uh, you know. Uh, don't just hide from what God calls us to in this moment. Like we really need to be out there and engaging. And this is a a helpful piece that will do that. The cool thing about this article as well is that there are resources at the end. So their team at the Humanitarian Disaster Institute, which side note, again, it's just cool how the Lord equips people with different giftings and brings them into ministries like this. Uh, But they have a list of resources at... um, places like reopeningthechurch.com. Again, this is all in the article. Uh, They have uh, another list at spiritualfirstaidhub.com, including a COVID-19 mental health handbook and a spiritual first aid manual. And actually, they partnered with us at the ERLC on a special edition of their Preparing Your Church for Coronavirus manual. So it's step-by-step, research-informed, faith-based planning guide to help churches. And then I thought this was really helpful as well. They said this, the good news is that our team's studies show that taking small steps to practically help others amidst a crisis like COVID-19 can make a big difference. So you don't have to be one person that goes out and changes the world, you know, or starts a humanitarian disaster institute, just a small step, like reaching out to your neighbor, um, or making a phone call to a family member who's isolated. I'm just trying to still figure out, Lindsay, why didn't you go into uh, humanitarian disaster ministry instead of becoming a professional singer of 1980s children's shows? Was Lamb Chop 1980s? Well, pretty because, sure Lamb Chops was 1980s. Um, I did not know that such things existed. Had I known, I maybe I would have gone into it. But we're thankful for professionals like these gentlemen who probably do a much better job than I could. And then finally, so listeners know that we record this on Thursday, and then it releases on Friday. Friday, we also release our weekly, which usually has the lead article and then has a rundown of some of the other things happening at the ERLC, things happening in D.C. So this week, I thought the article is important, so it's a sneak peek. So it's a sneak peek for our listeners now, but actually it'll be released on Friday and the article will be out. So then it's no longer a sneak peek, but it's a sneak peek for my co-hosts. It's really just careful planning, I suppose. Is that complicated or what? (laughs) (laughs) But this is an explainer from the ERLC staff about these vaccines you have been hearing about 
good news that we've been hearing about. So it's titled, What You Should Know About the COVID-19 RNA Vaccines. And right off the bat, I need to know about these vaccines because I don't even know what RNA means. So this explainer goes through uh, what Pfizer has been talking about and another company, Moderna Inc., which, P.S., the Queen of Tennessee, Dolly Parton, donated a million dollars to the Moderna efforts. That's right. And that's why a portion of the trials are taking place here in Tennessee. Ah, Interesting tidbits. Yeah. One, I'll tell you this. One bit of really practical knowledge I did not realize uh, before reading this, which will come out today for our listeners in the future. See, this is this is why Back to the Future is just very hard to keep up with all of that. Um, but no, seriously, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, a bit of practical knowledge, I did not realize that RNA vaccines, like one of the the chief uh, reasons that you want to develop an RNA vaccine is that when you take it, it is not something that will actually potentially give you the disease itself uh, so that your body builds immune. Man, that's, I'm here for that kind of knowledge. Yes, it's amazing. So some of the questions answered, uh, what are vaccines, vaccinations, and immunizations? What are the advantages of an RNA vaccine? Which, like Brent said, it's not an infectious vaccine, whereas some other vaccines actually give you a little bit of the disease. This does not, which is just amazing. What does it mean for a vaccine to be 90 to 95% effective? Because we've been hearing those amazing numbers, and it is good news. And then uh, why are individual vaccines a matter of public health or concern? So why does it matter that you or I would make the choice to get vaccinated and to get our family vaccinated? And then what happens next? Pfizer's been talking about this. Moderna's been talking about this. We all want this pandemic to be over. So what's the next step going to be? So check out that article on our website. But then also, if you're not already subscribed to The Weekly, I would highly recommend that you do that. And you can find that on our homepage. Yeah, so the weekly, I mean, shout out to this thing we put together every week. If the ERLC podcast is like everything you need to know for your ears, uh, the weekly is basically everything you need to know for your inbox. It is taking the important uh, the important things from the week, synthesizing them, put, putting those right at your fingertips. comes out once a week. It's not going to clutter your inbox, but it is a really, really valuable once a week email. Uh, also, shout out to these... Uh, pharmaceutical companies who are striving to get the vaccine out and available to us. Pfizer announces that they have a vaccine that's over 90% effective. Then Moderna's out and says, well, ours is 94.5% effective. And then Pfizer comes back and says, well, actually ours is 95% effective. We're right there. Like, you know, early next year, vaccines are going to be making their way out there and uh, an explainer like what you will find in this week's weekly. Those are really helpful to answer basic questions about vaccines that, that everyone is asking right now. So I maybe I'm maybe I'm feeling uh, particularly punchy this morning. I'm not sure why, but I just want to stop for a second and just say, like, step back in this conversation. So we are three conservative Christians, particularly three theologically conservative Christians here. And for those folks who may listen out there that might be you know skeptical or even critical of Christians, like we're sitting here affirming the science that is creating these vaccines. And we're really thankful for the hardworking men and women and experts and scientists uh, that are diligently working to get this to the market so that we can hopefully get this pandemic to an end. And I just, I just think there's something interesting about this, important about it, but I also just want to 
like take a step back and you know for those folks that are are skeptical of uh, conservative Christians like us like realize like what we're saying here and and why this is such a, a good thing. I think it's cool that you're saying we basically are defying the stereotype and at the same time we're trying to blow it up because Exactly. You know, Christians really are like pro science, pro real world, pro intellect people. And so yeah, we're we're pro knowledge and in this case we're going to be pro vaccine. It's going to be one it's of be a big one thing. of the individuals that's at the heart of of shepherding this forward from the perspective of the government is Dr. Francis Collins. Uh, who is a strong believer and and wants to be helpful for folks. I mean, I just think that's just an interesting commentary on, on this moment. So anyways, I'll get off my well, soapbox now. We believe those areas of, of study ultimately point to the Lord, to our creator God. And, um, and so he's not opposed to them. In fact, he's Lord over them. So thank you, Brent. And that little bit of extra time you added to this section should be deducted from your culture section coming up. So just keep nonsense. That in mind. Y'all, I'm coming <laughs> back. I'm I'm coming back with some ferocity. <laughs> keep that uh, for in this mind. week's cultural content. Okay. Well, as I remind you every week, there are plenty of other articles and videos and podcast resources at our site. But for now, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Hey, thanks, Lindsay, and you know Brent for adding your knowledge there. Uh, that's helpful. Look at what's going on at the ERLC. Brent, tell us about the world of culture this week. All right. Well, so we're going to make it a smooth segue. Why? Why are we so excited about vaccines? Well, it's because unfortunately, coronavirus, particularly in America, is at an all-time high. So Axios is reporting that this is as bad as the pandemic has ever been. The most cases, the most explosive growth and the greatest strain on hospitals. If businesses were closed right now, it would not be safe for them to be reopened, and holiday travel will be risky no matter where you're coming from or where you're going. So this is their look at the numbers. Over the past week, the U.S. averaged more than 154,000 new cases per day, the highest rate of the entire pandemic. The number of new infections rose in 46 states, held steady in three, which means that they remained very high, and declined in only one, Hawaii, which, Lindsay, I'm sure that makes you want to head to Hawaii, right? That's because everybody is outside in the gorgeous weather at the beach where the virus does not as easily spread. (laughs) That's right. How rude of you to rub that in our faces, Brent. I know, I know. Well, and this comes on, uh, or or actually this next news item comes on the heels of that. So the Center for Disease Control has now issued, so this is is actually just before we went on air here, uh, the CDC has issued new guidance. Americans are advised not to travel for Thanksgiving. Around 50 million Americans are expected to travel for the Thanksgiving holiday next week. Public health officials are now begging them to stay home, according to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I don't know what to – I mean, we've we've been having some conversations with colleagues uh, over the past week about what folks are planning to do. We've – We've got one of our our teammates at the RLC uh, who is inviting some folks from his family over uh, to his house, and he's making everybody uh, take a test and show a negative test before coming. Uh, We've got another one uh, who is setting ground rules uh, with her in-laws 
uh, about mask wearing and doing stuff. We've got some other folks that have just said, hey, we're we're just going to cancel uh, Thanksgiving for this year and we'll call everybody on FaceTime. I mean, I imagine that's probably some of the conversations that are happening around the majority of America right now. And who knows what's actually going to happen next week. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing we want to say to all of our listeners is basically, look, most of you have already decided what your holiday plans are going to be, whether you're going to keep things the same as normal or you're not going to travel or whatever kind of alterations you're going to, you might make. Uh, we would just encourage you to be as careful and as smart as you can about whatever plans you have made or things you plan to pursue. I know in my own family, we have a, uh, several new babies uh, that are very young and we're trying to protect. And so even as we gather in this kind of uh, slightly different format than we would do normally, that their safety is at the top of our concerns. And Brent, one of the things that stood out to me, you talked about the fact that right now we're having about 150,000 new cases every day. Well, I understand the pandemic is wearing on us. We're tired of talking about it, tired of it, like, you know, uh, dominating our lives. But just keep in mind that with the rate, I mean, with the number of infections that high, 150,000 people. Uh, 3,000 of those people or nearly 3,000 of the people from that one day are going to die. Like that's that's the mortality rate of this disease. And so when you hear those numbers, try not to just be so numb to it that you just turn it off. Because even if you are young and healthy and less likely to be significantly impacted, should you uh, contract coronavirus, the reality is that even young people even healthy people uh, sometimes experience really, really negative effects, and sometimes it, it leads to death. So we would just encourage you be, you know, be smart, be careful, and certainly enjoy your holidays. But but do so with an awareness that this is not a normal year. It is so tough. This is also on the heels of the article that was released that talked about planes being safer than restaurants. Uh, do y'all remember that because of the the filtering that's happening? Uh, one of my doctors told me that the risk is in the airport. And so she said, you know, if you're traveling in the airport, she didn't say it on, during this wave. It was the last wave. Uh, but if you're traveling in the airport, wear your mask the entire time. Do not take it off to eat or drink. It's challenging. People are lonely. I, some people, it may not be worth it to stay at home. So there are just no easy answers to this. And I just, I guess we just, pray that the Lord would just mitigate the effects of this virus and keep it from spreading. Yeah, this is, I mean, it's just like you said, this is a, this is a tough situation. And uh, we've all got quarantine and isolation fatigue, and my heart especially hurts uh, for those people who are kind of doing this solo or out on their own. And so I, man, I just don't know. There, there, I, there, there isn't any guidance uh, or advice to give other than what Josh said, like be responsible uh, and be safe. Uh, but hopefully uh, we can, we can all be, we can all celebrate a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, and look, one positive development that happened this week that, that maybe could help us all uh, the New York Times is reporting that the Food and Drug Administration on Tuesday of this week gave an emergency green light to the first rapid coronavirus test that can run from start to finish in your own home, paving a potential path for more widespread testing outside of healthcare settings. With a relatively simple nasal swab, the test can return results in about half an hour and is projected by the company to cost about $50 or less, according to the product's website. The test, developed by the California-based company Lucera Health, requires a prescription from a healthcare provider. 
it seems like we're close to having several of these, uh, maybe even a couple that will be over the counter available for widespread uh, distribution uh, across the country and and hopefully across the globe. And that to me seems like a big piece of the puzzle here uh, towards getting some sort of rapid confirmation that you do or do not have the virus. uh, And then you can either isolate or, or continue to go about your business. And so that that feels like this is an important development that that probably is getting obscured a little bit by the news on the vaccines, some of the other stuff that we're going to talk about in culture. I'm sure it is a, an important development. It does seem like one. I just would want to know the uh, effectiveness since the rapid tests, as we've seen, even in, through other people's lives that we know, aren't as accurate as the longer, the tests that take longer. So people are getting negative and positive tests in the same day. So, yeah, I would just like to know about the effectiveness. There was also a Time article, which was really interesting, that we'll link to that uh, this doctor was talking about a a plan to have rapid antigen tests that are much cheaper than these tests, and that way you could know if you were infectious. So I thought that was really interesting and creative. I think from uh, the early stages of, of this pandemic, we've all realized that a critical part of getting us out of this is widespread testing. And if it can be done safely and effectively at home, gosh, that would that would take us leaps and bounds uh, from where we are today, which is honestly a, a pretty concerning time uh, for this pandemic. Because I, I remember back when we were looking at 20, 30,000 cases a day nationwide and, and thinking that was a lot. And we are far, far above that. All right, moving on. Uh, The transition, the presidential transition. So uh, CNN is reporting that uh, President-elect Joe Biden is filling out his West Wing staff this week. The Biden-Harris transition team announced several White House senior staff on Tuesday, uh, one being Jennifer O'Malley Dillon, who was the uh, successful campaign manager for the Biden for President campaign. She is joining the West Wing staff as a deputy chief of staff. Uh, Mike Donilon, chief strategist for the Biden campaign, he's coming aboard as senior advisor, as well as Steve Reschetti, who is a co-chairman of the Biden campaign. Uh, Dana Remus, general counsel for the campaign, and Julie Rodriguez, who is the deputy campaign manager uh, for the campaign as well. They're all coming uh, to the West Wing staff. It was also announced that Congressman Cedric Richmond from New Orleans, a Democrat from New Orleans, he will serve as senior advisor for public engagement uh, for uh, President-elect Biden when, when he becomes president. All of these individuals are joining Ron Klain, who Joe Biden announced would be his incoming chief of staff. And uh, the takeaway, I think, for a lot of folks who are watching this is that this team is is coming aboard with a high degree of of competency and knowledge about how government works. Friend of all those names uh, that you just threw out there, are there any that stand out to you or that you're more or less familiar with? Yeah, I'm familiar with uh, a few of those names. So uh, General Mally Dillon, she's been an operative on the Democratic side for several years. Uh, Steve Reschetti is is actually pretty well known in uh, Republican circles and operative circles on Capitol Hill. And one article that I read this week suggested that he would probably be the first person uh, that 
uh, Republicans on Capitol Hill reach out to uh, because he does have some bridges there. And and Ron Klain, uh, who is uh, the incoming president's chief of staff, he's very well known in Washington as an effective uh, messenger and collaborator on a number of uh, different items from his time in the Obama administration. So, uh, oh, and and one we should point out, Julia Rodriguez, uh, she actually worked in uh, the Obama White House, and and she's someone I think that is is very familiar with folks who have dealt with previous administrations. So, yeah, these are these are some names that I think will be familiar. Uh, to some folks. And um, that's that I think is exactly what uh, the Biden-Harris administration is. That's the image they're trying to project. Yeah, Brent, we mentioned last week on the podcast that um, Ron Klain has been with Joe Biden since his uh, the beginning of his career in the Senate. And if you forgot, Joe Biden was elected to the Senate when he was 30 years old. So I mean, that's significant. It makes me want to ask, what am I doing with my life? The Lord's plan is different for everybody's life. And you have a wife and children that you're taking care of. You've done good things with your life, Josh. And gosh darn it, people like you. That's right. Oh. <laughs> what is that from? Saturday Night Live. Oh. That was, uh, wasn't that Franken? Didn't Al Franken do that character? Yeah. The, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and gosh, the, it, it's uh, the guy that talks in the mirror. Yeah, I'm getting the monologues confused between that and the thing from The Help. You're smart, kind, oh, yeah. and important. You was, <laughs> you was small. I can't remember it. You was kind. You was... I don't remember the rest of it. Meanwhile, the legal team representing the Trump campaign continues with challenges across the country to various uh, states and counties in their uh, tallying efforts uh, from the recent election. So CBS News is reporting as President-elect Joe Biden lays the groundwork for his transition to the presidency. President Trump still refuses to acknowledge his defeat and is instead looking to the courts to rescue his chances for a second term in the White House, though in most cases, it's been unsuccessful. Since Election Day, the number of lawsuits filed by the Trump campaign and Republican voters in an effort to halt the certification of election results has swelled to more than a dozen. As a matter of fact, I think it's over two dozen at this point, with legal battles focused on a handful of key battleground states where Mr. Trump lost. The president continues to claim the cases provide him a pathway to victory over Mr. Biden, but they involve too few ballots for him to close the president-elect's five and a half million vote lead or change the outcome of any uh, one particular state's race. Uh, As a reminder, uh, Mr. Biden secured 306 electoral votes to Mr. Trump's 230. Two. That's that's where we currently find ourselves. I, I want to say I saw one statistic this week that so far the the challenges emanating from uh, Trump's legal team is something like one for twenty five. That's right, Brent. The last time I looked at it, it was uh, one for twenty five. I think I had read an article that uh, about the whittling away of Trump's legal team. Is it true that the number of lawyers has significantly decreased in the midst of this? Uh, these lawsuits. Well, I don't. I don't know honestly if it's fair to say that the the overall number of uh, lawyers participating in it have have been whittled away because I, I think they've been replaced by other individuals willing to serve as counsel. But gotcha. in one instance this week in Pennsylvania, because they have had such turnover in the legal team there, they've had to refile their challenge three separate times. Uh, and at one point, 
Rudy Giuliani, who is leading on the ground the the effort in Pennsylvania, he cited the fact uh, that they are having to amend their uh, legal filing because they have had so much turnover. They actually want to include something from their very first filing. Uh, and, and so uh, that's that's just what happens, uh, I guess, uh, when when you have folks uh, deciding to not serve on a on a legal team at the last minute. Okay, and also this week, President Trump, uh, he fired his head of cybersecurity. So NBC News reports that Christopher Krebs, who led the federal government's, by all accounts, successful election cybersecurity efforts, has been fired by President Donald Trump via Twitter. Krebs, the director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, has been the target of public criticism from Trump since the November 3rd election over his agency's rumor control blog, which rebuts a list of false claims about election fraud and hacking, many of which Trump or his lawyers have touted as real uh, after he lost the election. Quote, I'm proud of the work that we did at CISA, Krebs told NBC News on Tuesday night after the firing. I'm proud of the teammates I had at CISA. We did it right. A source with knowledge of the firing said that Krebs found out about it via Twitter and that it was upsetting for him uh, because he took his work seriously. Needless to say, it, it's um, it, it's a, a bit jarring uh, that there is somebody uh, who is tasked specifically with ensuring that there are no cybersecurity threats uh, to the election and that everybody agreed he did an incredible job. That agency did an incredible job, uh, but now he's been let go. Uh, that's, that's, that's not a good sign uh, for <laughs> where things stand currently. I got to say, it wasn't really surprising to see this happen. I mean, this is, we're in the final days of the Trump administration, and there has been a considerable amount of personnel changes. But with the Trump campaign and the president himself disputing the outcome of the election and uh, insisting on the possibility that widespread fraud occurred, which would have affected the outcome, seeing this termination as well as a number of others really isn't surprising, but it is kind of disheartening. Okay, moving on over to the wider domestic front. So Bloomberg News is reporting this surprising finding. Eight months into the pandemic, Americans' household finances are in the best shape in decades. So it's a seemingly incongruous thought that with the widespread business lockdowns earlier in the year and coinciding surge in unemployment, And it certainly doesn't apply to all females equally, but it points to just how strong the U.S. economy was going into the virus outbreak and how powerful the combined monetary and fiscal response was from the Federal Reserve, Congress, and the Trump administration. So I remember all these studies from, gosh, over the past several years talking about things like uh, Americans are over leveraged when it comes to debt or uh, the, the majority of Americans, their their savings account just don't have uh, enough resources in them uh, should any family have to deal with an unexpected need or emergency. And uh, this study is showing, I, I assume because a lot of us just haven't been doing as many of the extracurricular things that we're used to doing as individuals and families, 
uh, that we're actually starting to have more resources. Uh, so I, I guess that's a good thing. Well, I can certainly say for us being at home, we've been able to change our car insurance, which has saved us some money because we're not driving as much, which I know they're doing for some other people, the insurance companies. Um, Also, it's given us the opportunity to look at our budget, and we were floored by how much we were spending at the grocery store, even though I promise you we do not eat like kings and queens. My husband eats chicken tenders and mac and cheese many nights, which is very sad sad situation, but he's happy about it. Uh, And so we've been trying to be more cognizant of that as well. Although my spending on Amazon is definitely not decreased. (laughs) So, um, so I don't know, but I guess this is one of those um, silver linings that we can be thankful for in the midst of this hard season. This is a total um, unintended segue from what Brent was talking about, but Lindsay, you're talking about Justin eating Mac and cheese and chicken strips or chicken nuggets makes me feel like you're saying to him, you will eat your chicken nuggets and you will like it. What does that come from? No, I'm, it's just the, the impression that you have left me with is that your husband No, he requests. Joyfully, he, he requests, requests them. Yes. Okay. He's like, I was like, what do you want for dinner tonight? Chicken tenders and mac and cheese sounds really good. <laughs> I'm like, really? <laughs> so he requests it. And I, so I, ladies, find yourself a husband who is not a diva when it comes to food. It will bless you greatly. That seems like sage advice. That is sage advice. I tell you what. Oh, there you go. Okay. Well, for this next story, uh, it kind of picks up a thread there in that Bloomberg News report. It said that uh, the uh, financial picture, it doesn't apply to all families equally. Well, the New York Times is focusing in on one group in particular uh, where the coronavirus pandemic has actually been pretty harmful. Uh, For millions of working women, the pandemic has delivered a rare and ruinous one-two-three punch. First, the parts of the economy that were smacked hardest and earliest by job losses were ones where women dominate, restaurants, retail businesses, and healthcare. Then a second wave began taking out local and state government jobs, another area where women outnumber men. A third blow has for many been the knockout, the closing of childcare centers and the shift to remote schooling. This has saddled working mothers much more than fathers with overwhelming household responsibilities. Look, that's uh, that is the reality uh, for many individuals, many families out there. It is challenging. I I think the blessing of it is kids getting home and getting to be with their families. It's twofold. It's it's like bittersweet. It's so tough to try to to manage all of these responsibilities. Um, and as moms, as I believe the natural nurturers, you know, that's just it, designed in us. You do take over an overwhelming amount of household responsibilities and the care for the children. Although dads are. Uh, like my husband, is incredibly helpful. But at the same time, kids being able to come home and be around their families more, like that's been a blessing for us as well, although it's been challenging. So for me, it's hard to interpret and it's twofold. Right. And and there may be individuals uh, who, who aren't in uh, as uh, privileged of a position that we're in. Um, and, and, and maybe, you know, if you're a single parent in a household, I, I can't imagine uh, how stressful this moment is 
And so it's just, I, I just surfaced this story because it is a reminder of the various circumstances, some of which are even more challenging uh, than what the three of us uh, are facing uh, with folks out there. All right, yes, moving I'm, on. Well, oh, and Brent, I would say by and large. We, ah, record scratch. <laughs> yes, <laughs> by and large. I'm glad you said that because the three of us have it easy compared to many, many people in our nation and especially single parents who are responsible for the economic well-being of their home all on their own as well. Yeah, I cannot imagine. So I'm glad that you pointed that out. All right. Well, in good news, in SBC life right now, uh, look, a number of our listeners are, are probably very familiar uh, with the structure of the Southern Baptist Convention, but um, it, you know, we should just point it out for maybe those who are not. There are 43 state conventions around the country uh, that represent the, the various churches that are in each of the, the 50 states, and a number of them have, have moved their gatherings online. Uh, some have determined to uh, follow in the steps of the um, annual meeting uh, and just cancel this year's state gatherings, and, and there are a few that uh, are moving ahead with some limited uh, in-person meetings, but there's still some good news uh, that are coming out of these, and one of them was particularly great this week. Uh, an abbreviated one-day session on November 10th at the historic First Baptist Church of Columbia uh, is where messengers pass the gavel to Alex Sands, the state convention's first-ever Black president in South Carolina. Uh, so uh, congrats to Pastor Sands, and congrats to South Carolina for uh, this really historic uh, moment, and uh, I'm just so thankful uh, for the work that is going on at the state convention level, at the association level, and uh, all of the pastors and messengers who are gathering to continue to do the administrative work of uh, the Southern Baptist denomination. Major shout out to South Carolina Baptist. It means a lot to me. So I grew up in, in North Carolina and have spent a ton of time in South Carolina. I have some really good friends who are Baptist pastors in the state. And look, the Southern Baptist Convention, we, we talk about it all the time because I think it's a necessary thing. We're a denomination that uh, was formed uh, for reasons that, you know, we're, we frankly have been deeply ashamed of because we wanted uh, slaveholders to be able to serve as missionaries. And in the more than 150 years of the SBC's long history, we have come to, you know, repudiate that from that history and that identity. We've repented for it, but we have been on a long, long march toward trying to uh, achieve racial reconciliation, racial unity, racial harmony. And so in South Carolina, which was, you know, the first state to secede from the union, it's where a lot of the groundwork for the SBC was laid in the mid 1800s uh, for them to finally, after all of this time, elect their first black president of this state convention. This is a huge deal and something for Southern Baptists to really celebrate. And so uh, it it just warms my heart. It is incredibly encouraging, and it's uh, something that I'm glad we can draw attention to. And you know what's really cool about this? He was going to be holding the gavel for next year's meeting, which will be the 200th anniversary of the South Carolina State Convention. 
<laughs> I mean, that that's amazing right there. So this this really is a historic moment. Okay, and for this, uh, this last note, perhaps it is uh, appropriate that I mentioned Back to the Future uh, previously because it deals with Michael J. Fox. And unfortunately, it's a, it's a bit of a sad note. According to the Los Angeles Times, the actor reveals in his new memoir, No Time Like the Future, that he is retiring from acting once again due to declining health. Quote, there is a time for everything, and my time of putting in a 12-hour workday and memorizing seven pages of dialogue is best behind me, Fox writes. At least for now, I enter a second retirement. That could change because everything changes, but if this is the end of my acting career, so be it. The actor was diagnosed with early-onset Parkinson's disease in 1991 at the age of 29. Gosh, that's that's incredible. He went public with the diagnosis in 1998, becoming a strong advocate for Parkinson's research through the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Michael J. Fox's story and work with Parkinson's is so important to my family because we have a family member that has Parkinson's and that I'm sure has benefited from the work and the attention that he has given to Parkinson's and Parkinson's research. So um, it's also encouraging to see, I I know he is, um, must be struggling. It's also encouraging to see how well he actually has done since being diagnosed at such a young age. Never forget Back to the Future and um, Family Ties, that's right. I was too young for Family Ties to be so a show that I actually watch, but, you know, hoverboards and Back to the Future is something that I'll never, you know, never forget. I'm still waiting for my hoverboard. Okay. All right. Well, Lindsay and Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. This episode of the ERLC podcast was sponsored by The Good Book Company, publisher of A Better Than Anything Christmas by Barbara Rioch. These daily Advent devotionals will help families get more excited about Jesus at Christmas than anything else. Find out more about this book at thegoodbook.com. So this is a really cool thing for us. Uh, For the first time on the ERLC podcast, we are going to have our boss, uh, Dr. Russell Moore, who is the president of the ERLC, on the podcast with us today. Dr. Moore has recently launched a new book called The Courage to Stand, Facing Your Fears Without Losing Your Soul. And we're going to talk to him about the book today, about our work at the ERLC, and it is a real privilege to have him join us. Well, Dr. Moore, we are honored to have you on the podcast. And as we're getting started, you're so familiar to a lot of people uh, that are regular listeners of the podcast. But for those that aren't, could you just tell them a little bit about yourself and and what you do? And we always ask one, like this question when we're starting, what's one thing that God is teaching you in this season of your life? Uh, I am a Christian uh, since the age of about 12, uh, who uh, sensed a, a calling to ministry fairly early on and have been in ministry now for 25 years with my wife and now five sons. And uh, what we do uh, through the ERLC is two things, help to equip churches and Christians and and families uh, to apply the gospel to their moral decisions. Uh, And then we speak out from uh, those churches and Christians to the outside world. Uh, Well, uh, God's teaching me a a lot of things in this season of my life. I think among the things that I'm learning right now is the um, the importance of uh, understanding uncertainty and mystery in terms of the meaning of one's own life, because 
what we're all dealing with as a not just as a country but as a, a world is this sense of uh, unpredictability. Um, I think that the, the pandemic has shown that there are all kinds of things that we expected uh, on New Year's Eve of, of 2019, 2020, that uh, did not uh, turn out uh, to be that way. We never could have predicted uh, some of the things that have happened. And I don't think that's an unusual situation. It's just unusual in the way that we're all seeing it. Uh, right in front of our faces right now. But I think it it causes us to uh, reflect back on uh, what the book of James says. Uh, don't say, tomorrow we will do this and tomorrow we will do that. Ask instead, uh, if the Lord wills. And I think that's an important thing to, to learn. It's very difficult for, for all of us to, to learn that, because we'd rather... Uh, we'd rather just map out uh, what tomorrow looks like, next year looks like, and so forth, rather than trust a God who's going to be here with us in it. Mm, there's a lot of truth in there. So, okay, sir, well, I mean, as you know, our our podcast, it focuses on Christians and culture, and you lead the RLC in our mission. So could you help our listeners know a little bit more about how the RLC's work relates to culture itself? Well, I think one of the mistakes uh, that we make as Christians is to assume that uh, culture is something that we can see uh, outside of us, and we we find a a way to evaluate it. And so there would be some Christians who are more, uh, more prone to affirm aspects of culture, and there will be other Christians who are more uh, prone to uh, uh, oppose and to find all kinds of things within culture that they uh, critique or that they find dangerous. But I think that the most important aspects of culture uh, when it comes to Christians are not answering the questions that are being posed with with biblical answers, although that's you know that's important too. What's more important is saying what are the questions that are not being asked. Because that's how culture uh, works in any uh, context. It shapes not only the experience, but also uh, the way that one even knows how to question uh, the experience. And so if you're in a pattern, I was just uh, talking to someone uh, yesterday uh, who had been in a really dysfunctional uh, sort of uh, family situation and said, after a while of living in this craziness, uh, I started to think I was the crazy one. And uh, that's, that, that's actually the, the normal pattern of life in a fallen universe, is not to understand what the questions are that aren't being asked. And I think that, that what, um, what the gospel does is, as John Stott used to put it, the gospel forms the church, and the church carries the gospel, and as the church carries the gospel, it, it helps people to connect to a larger, uh, a larger way of living uh, in Christ that then is to affect the mind, but not just the mind, also the imagination, also the conscience. Um, and, and a lot of that is going to be I'm really less worried when it comes to cultural formation. I'm less worried about whether somebody knows how to articulate why they uh, live a certain way or, uh, or act a certain way 
as that they have the right kinds of intuitions that know when there are questions that need to be asked. I think that's the most important thing when it comes to culture. Dr. Moore, that's really helpful, especially thinking about the fact that one of the roles is, is it is counterintuitive. It's not necessarily to confront the issues that are right in front of people's faces, but talking about the things that that are being neglected or overlooked. And so uh, that's kind of a good segue into the next question, which is about, about your new book. So your new book is called The Courage to Stand, Facing Your Fear Without Losing Your Soul. And so I guess as we're, you know, to start off with about this, uh, why did you write a book about courage? And why do you think this is something important for Christians to hear right now? Well, I wrote the book because I, I found that uh, most of the people that I was dealing with and working with thought that they had one problem when they really had another. Uh, and that is what they assumed their problem was, uh, was that they didn't know how to answer um, all of the, the questions around them. And so it was, let me make sure that I'm prepared uh, to be able to argue uh, with with people. And there's a, a limited uh, value in, in that. But they assumed that that was their problem, and it really isn't. The, the primary problem that they were facing is fear and uh, the way that they're responding to fear. And people respond to fear in different ways, but in ways that are alike driving us away from Christ. So there's some people who uh, respond to fear with a sort of um, withdrawal and accommodation to whatever they're afraid of. Uh, and that's what we, you know, we typically think of when we think of cowardice. Uh, but then some people respond to fear with a kind of frantic, uh, self-protective uh, quarrelsomeness. Um, and that's also uh, being driven by fear rather than being shaped by Christ. And so I, I kept seeing this uh, reality show up in, in multiple different areas of life. Uh, whether it was dealing with someone who, as a, uh, for example, uh, talking to somebody who did not want to uh, marry uh, a a woman that he, uh, he obviously should marry her, and, and he knew that she was exactly right for him, and she knew that too, but he was afraid that because his family background had been so bad that he was just going to repeat the errors that his parents had made. And so he was, he was afraid, how can I know that I'm not going to do that? And so I, I would have to come in and say, look, the very fact that you're posing that question uh, tells me that you're not in the groove to repeat the patterns that, you're, that you've seen with your parents. You're going to be really careful not to do that. But what he wanted was, well, can you show me a kind of um, certainty that I'm going to be a good husband and a good father? And the response was, no, I can't, I can't show that to, to anyone because, uh, because we don't see that into the future. And I found that that's the case really with almost everything. We have a, a sense of saying before uh, I can trust God with this, whatever it is, I need to make sure that I know that all the risk and danger has been evacuated from it. And that's just not, that's just not what the Christian life is like. Will you touch on those issues with, uh, with fear, uh, with anxiety, with, with other issues throughout your book? And the book, uh, you, throughout the book, you trace the story of Elijah in a really interesting way. 
so what was it about Elijah's story that caused you uh, to, to really focus in on him? And, and how does Elijah's story help us learn about courage? Well, a couple of reasons why I, I focused on Elijah. One of those is because of how important he is in terms of the biblical story. If you think about the traditional uh, practice in a Jewish household at uh, Passover to leave a chair uh, open at the table for Elijah. That's just an illustration of how important this figure is throughout both the Old and New Testaments. And, uh, you know, it's hard to um, imagine that because this is a figure that really only shows up in a few chapters in First and Second Kings. But then throughout the whole rest of the Bible, there's this, um, there, there are these allusions back to Elijah, and there's this word that says, before the day of the Lord, Elijah will come. That's the, the last thing that we're told in the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, before 400 years uh, of silence, before the great and awesome day of the Lord, Elijah, his servant, will come. And then when you come into the New Testament, that's one of the first questions that's being addressed, is John the Baptist in the spirit of Elijah. So this is, a, this is an important figure. Uh, but secondly, it's because it's an important, he's an important figure that I uh, misunderstood. And the misunderstanding that I had sort of showed me my misunderstanding about a lot of other things. Because just like with anyone else, if you know someone, you're familiar with someone, a lot of times you'll you'll think of that person in light of uh, one set of uh, descriptions of that person and sort of build out from there. Now, with Elijah, the first thing that would come to mind is Mount Carmel, where uh, Elijah is confronting the prophets of Baal, priests of Baal, and he taunts them, he argues with them. And then he calls down fire from heaven, uh, prays to God, and God sends fire from heaven. And he's vindicated. I mean, pe- people can immediately see that Elijah is a prophet of God, and God is, is there. It's this moment of real triumph. And I would often think of Elijah as that really being, if you had to say, what's the moment that sums up uh, Elijah's life and ministry? That's it. But the more time I spent with Elijah, the more I realized that that's actually not the hinge moment. Uh, that, that was a prelude to what was going to happen right after that, where Elijah goes out into uh, the wilderness and really sort of takes, this, um, takes the path that Moses took uh, from the mountain through the wilderness into the promised land uh, over the Jordan. He takes it in reverse and goes back. And in that, that's where God is really... Uh, shaping and forming Elijah in a way that uh, that equips Elijah for his future, and his future is something that that isn't resolved in Second Kings. Uh, he's he's suddenly gone. Uh, no one knows how to find him, and he shows up next in Scripture uh, at the Transfiguration, talking with Jesus. Luke says about what was going to happen at Jerusalem, and what was going to happen at Jerusalem is the cross. So 1 Kings 19, this chapter where, you know, a lot of people look at it and they say, oh, this is about um, someone who's tired or exhausted or discouraged. And yeah, it is, but it's mostly about the cross and about Elijah coming to see 
uh, a God who is present in the crucified and resurrected Jesus. Gosh, Dr. Moore, that's so good. Um, and I like it because you talk about how there is this focal point in Elijah's story that we're all drawn to, but but there's more going on there. I wonder, uh, again, this is kind of a good transition point. So as, as you were writing this book uh, about courage, I, I know I mean, you write in deeply personal terms. Uh, the, the book uh, reveals a lot about your own experience, and I imagine you had to be pretty deeply reflective about that as you were going through the writing process. But as you were writing this book, was there anything about your own life uh, that you kept returning to in your thoughts, either as some kind of inflection point or formative experience? Was there anything like that as you were going through the writing process? Yes, and that's uh, I, I talk about that in the first uh, chapter. Uh, is the experience that I had as a 15-year-old in the Bible Belt uh, thrown into a, a spiritual crisis about whether or not Christianity was real and, and whether or not Jesus, uh, in fact, was uh, there. Um, and that wasn't—it wasn't because of um, intellectual doubt. That wasn't my problem. My problem was that I saw so many examples in the world around me of Christianity uh, as a useful tool for all kinds of other things. Christianity is a tool to prop up uh, Southern culture, or Christianity is a tool to keep uh, marriages and families together, or Christianity is a tool for political power, all of those things, that I started to wonder, well, is, is this all just a means to an end? And so I talk about in the book how um, how formative it was for me to have read the Chronicles of Narnia so many times as a kid uh, that I practically lived in that world. So I recognized the name C.S. Lewis on the spine of mere Christianity and took that home. And that's what God used really as maybe the pivot point uh, other than than my actual conversion, the pivot point of my life and shaped and formed everything going forward, not because of the arguments that Lewis gives in mere Christianity, although those are good and sound. Uh, it's because of the tone of voice uh, where this is clearly somebody who wasn't trying to manipulate me or to uh, mobilize me for anything or sell me anything. He really was bearing witness in a way that was able to uh, speak to the mind, the imagination, the conscience, the the psyche, all of that at once. And so I think the rest of my life has been sort of speaking to people who are in the same situation that I was in at 15, uh, regardless of how how old they are, because you, you're not able to tell. Uh, if you had seen me at 15 years old, you would not know that I was in any sort of uh, spiritual crisis. I, I was uh, somebody who was out uh, serving uh, in the youth ministry and evangelism and, and all of those things, but underneath it was this, this deep fear uh, about whether or not um, what my life was built on was real. And I think there are 
people like that in every sort of category uh, in every stage of life right now. Well, sir, I, I got to say uh, an additional note about this book. One of the one of the themes uh, that you you return to when you write is lessons from your childhood and formative years. And uh, one of the ones that I particularly enjoyed was when your uncle was telling you about the church that that he led uh, right next door uh, about it having demons in it. Um, uh-huh. and just, just you experiencing that and walking us through your thoughts as a child in the moment and how captivated you were by that and having to go into the church to retrieve something. I've just always particularly appreciated that, uh, about your writing, because I think so many of us have some similar experiences, uh, of that growing up in the church. Yeah. And I think that what, um, I think that what's, uh, often missing is the way that, uh, children need to have some sort of acknowledgement of uh, the dark uh, and of and of uh, what's wrong out there in the world. And um, Mari Sendak, who wrote uh, Where the Wild Things Are, and was really criticized for having a uh, having a story with scary monsters in it for very young children, uh, rightly said. Children don't get scared of things because they read stories or because adults uh, acknowledge those scary things. They get scared of those things because they intuitively know that they're out there, and they're wondering if the adults around them see it too. And so I think when you look at uh, the way that the Bible, um, the way that Bible, the Bible speaks about reality, uh, I was just um, reading uh, this morning, uh, in an old essay of Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, talking about why he could not be a Buddhist. And he said, uh, Buddhism has a view of life that is only tragic, uh, essentially. Uh, and you, you, ultimately the goal is to escape it, but, uh, the, the life is tragedy. Whereas in Christianity, you have tragedy and, uh, Comedy, to, to use a, a dramatic term, not in, not in laughing comedy, but but uh, in, in an upward uh, affirmation. Both of those two things exist together, and that makes sense out of life. And I think that's true. And so when uh, when I encountered a kind of Christianity that said uh, there's a God who lives, and there are forces that are opposed to that. That that really did that really did ring true with me. Uh, not only because I knew that's what the Bible teaches, but because it, it made sense of the world, and so I, I think that was right. Well, Doctor Moore, we want to say thanks so much uh, for joining us today. I know again, a lot of our listeners are already very familiar with you, but the ones that aren't, I don't know where else you can go to find a discussion of where the wild things are in the Chronicles of Narnia and the pivots to Reinhold Niebuhr, but. <laughs> You you know that that's what people exactly. can expect from your writing, and so we you know we commend your book to them and your weekly newsletter. More to the point, that comes out on Mondays. But uh, for for Brent and I, we just want to say thanks so much uh, for taking the time to join us today. Well, thanks for having me. Good to talk with you. So now it's time for the lunchroom, where every week we tell you about the things that we've been talking about with one another. Lindsay, you're up first this week, so tell us what's on your mind. I was about to start off with so again. Why do I start off with so? Because it's a verbal tick that you have, Lindsay. Yes, you it is. You can start off with fa. 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 T. <laughs> <laughs> I've decided that for my lunchroom, 
uh, and hopefully in the future too, I can provide some some life hacks, <laughs> like the toothpaste thing, you know. Life and hacks Secret- with Lindsay. Secret life hacks with Lindsay. <laughs> Secretary of State uh, Trey Hargett, you know, has talked about the toothpaste I recommended, and I just feel so built up. That's a shout out to him. Um, I also use anyway. that toothpaste and love it. Yes, you do way. use it. Yes. Once you get used to it, I'm telling you, it works. Arm and Maybe Hammer. you should remind um, people. I was going to say, yes. tell them what it is. Arm and Hammer takes the stains, the coffee stains off your teeth. Because if you don't remove the stains, it's pointless to use Crest white strips because the whitening will not stick. Who knew? So one thing that I have found that I really enjoy that probably gets me more in, into more trouble than actually is helpful, I don't know, is it's called Prime Lovin' on, um, on Instagram. So... If you're on Instagram, it's just this account that you follow, Prime Lovin', like not with a G loving, but with a apostrophe at the end. And they follow Amazon and post all of these deals. And so you just scroll through them. So they've had great Christmas deals going on, um, toys for your kids, clothes, different Amazon products, which I, I love to buy things on Amazon. And I'm a total sucker for those uh what's that called? Clickbait from like BuzzFeed and stuff for like 25 items on Amazon under $15 that will change your life. And I always get sucked into those. So I would recommend that you follow them on Instagram. Do you actually purchase anything when you get sucked into those clickbaity things? Sometimes like the other day I got sucked into one and got lost down the black hole of it and added something to my cart in Amazon. So I have to think on it. That's what kind of shopper I am. I've got to think but like on what, it. So like, uh, give us an example of a, a recent uh, impulse buy like that. Like, well, like did you buy, a, did you end up buying a slinky uh, so they didn't go up no. and down your stairs? Or, I, or I never was good at using slinkies or yo-yos, but. No, no, no. I, okay. Wait, 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 wait. How, okay. How can you be bad at using slinkies? You just start at the top step and just push it and it, it goes. It doesn't it, it, always work out that way. No. Okay. Well, the, I feel like this, my slinky just tumbled and didn't do what slinkies are supposed to do, like an accordion. Anyway, you must have gotten you must have gotten your slinky from like Dollar General. <laughs> Probably. I was slinkies say it was generic. <laughs> slinkies are like the the toy that j- you can't not you can't mess up. I mean, come on. <laughs> well. Uh, recently, I put in my cart. I haven't bought, but this it's like this door draft protector. So our doors have, for an out outdoor door or an interior door, our doors have these gaps, which is problematic because we have this Jack and Jill bathroom that will be between the two kids' room or guest room. And so it lets light in and noise. And so I've I had a janky way of fixing it, but I thought that this looked much better. So I was maybe going to try it, and it's under $15. So how can you go wrong? Well, props to Lindsay for using the word janky. <laughs> so there's your there's your life hack number one with Lindsay. Prime lovin' on Instagram. All right. Well, there you have it. Brent, what's on your mind this week? So I thought this was just a cool story and a, a lot of us did around the ERLC when we, we read about it this week. George Clooney has finally confirmed that he once gave 14 close friends $1 million each in cash. I'm so glad you shared the story. How yeah. I wish I was George Clooney's close friend. <laughs> exactly. I mean, he's got 14 of them. Why, why couldn't I just, just make the circle one bigger, right? Uh, he corroborated this years-old story in an interview 
with GQ published Tuesday in honor of him being named the magazine's icon of the year. Uh, so apparently George Clooney has done some, some other awesome stuff, but, uh, the, the note that I thought was really, really cool was at the very end of the article where a friend was saying, dude, I'm, I'm not going to take a million dollars in cash from you. That's insane. And Clooney's response, it seemed like he was ready for it. Okay. Well, if you don't take it, then the 13 others don't get it either. <laughs> and oh, so it's like, man. I mean, man. What 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 a story! Um, and uh, uh, yeah, gosh, I, I wish I had friends like that, <clears throat> Josh. <clears throat> oh, dude, no kidding. I mean, it was such an elaborate thing, too. Apparently, you know, he gives them this money, all of them, in cash. Well, where do you even go? It, he, they talked about basically going to a warehouse that has just pallets of of cash to get $14 million. He puts it in suitcases and gives it to all of them at the same time. He said that the security guards he had to hire to just gather the money together were scared out of their minds. And who wouldn't be hauling around $14 million? It's just, man, what a story to be able to do that. Honestly, it needs to be turned into a movie. Right. You know, Ocean's 14. <laughs> That's right. If he got it from a casino heist, that that would actually be perfect. So it has like anyways, a certain o- oceans quality to it. Anyway, it, it does. It does. So, anyways, that that's what I'm bringing to the lunchroom because honestly, that couldn't be topped. Man, well, Brent brought such a really awesome thing. Uh, mine almost feels weird to pivot back to something serious, but I'll at the risk of you know doing that, I'll just I'll just tell you I've been reading this book by Nancy Piercy called Love Thy Body, which is basically a ethical and theological look at the human body. And the title really threw me. And as soon as I said that it threw Brent too because the face that he's making uh but it is uh the, the full title is Love Thy Body, answering hard questions about life and sexuality. And honestly in this really hyper-sexualized and sexually confused age that we live in. Uh, It has been a really, really helpful book so far. I've read about half of it and plan to finish it over the weekend. But it is one of those things that if you you have children or if you're in ministry or uh, if you deal with issues related to human sexuality at all, this would be a really, really helpful resource for you. Uh, Nancy Piercy takes a lot of these really difficult issues and she makes them so accessible and easy to understand. And so it is uh, honestly not a book or a topic that I was expecting to to really dive into, but the book has been so excellent and it is such a helpful resource that I wanted to recommend it to all of our listeners. Well, that's going to do it for the show today. We want to say thanks so much for listening. If you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or review. A lot of you guys have done that and it's been really cool to see those coming in. And just as a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. But for Brent and Lindsay and myself, we want to say thanks so much for listening and we will be back next week with more content.